Uh, do you guys know any currently serving congresswomen? No. Only one I used to know was like Letitia James. <laughs> so no, anyway. Uh, which one do you like? Which one do you want me to name? <laughs> um, Elizabeth Warren? Nancy Del Delbasti, right? Delbasti? Nancy Pelosi is what you're saying, yeah. This is the one from Connecticut, right? Here's the one from Connecticut. Kathy, too? <laughs> <laughs> From WNYC Studios, this is Nancy. With your hosts, Tobin Lowe and Kathy Too. Tobin. Kathy. The midterms are approaching. Indeed they are. And you know what I'm excited about? What are you excited about? I'm excited about this so-called rainbow wave I've been hearing about. Mm -hmm. There are a record number of LGBT candidates running for office in this next election. Yes, it is so exciting. Progress. Progress, yes. <laughs> it's like queer people's moment to storm the government. Oh, but also, Kath, we've been storming the government. <laughs> Maybe even earlier than you realize. I sense a story coming. So today, we're bringing everyone a story from a great podcast called The United States of Anxiety. It's produced here at WNYC out of the newsroom. And this season, they're doing a deep dive into the theme of gender and power. Oh, my God. What a time to be talking about gender and power. I know. And it's only gotten more interesting with, you know, Brett Kavanaugh getting confirmed to the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. But in the story we're about to hear today, we get to sort of travel back in time 100 years to when things were actually maybe much more progressive in some ways. So the first voice you're going to hear is Kai Wright. We love Kai here. We even had him on the show last season. Yep, he's great. And his main gig is host of United States of Anxiety. And just to set the story up a bit, one thing he and the team have been really interested in is what a huge year this is for women running for office. Take it away, Kai. We're going to start with one race where a woman is running as an underdog and has, in fact, been an unexpectedly strong fundraiser even before Kavanaugh. Kathleen Williams is running as a Democrat for Montana's one at-large congressional seat. I'm Kathleen Williams. I'm running for U.S. Congress. We need to turn this thing around. She was a total upset in the primary, and now she's steadily gaining ground on the Republican incumbent, Greg Gianforte. Now, that name may sound familiar. It's because he made headlines last year when, before he won a special election in Montana, he body-slammed a reporter. Sick and tired, you guys. The last Jesus time you came Christ. here, you did the same thing. Get the hell out of here. Jesus. Get the hell out of here. Williams may become part of this historic class of women this year. But, you know, Montana long ago made history for women in politics. Over a hundred years ago, Montana elected the first ever Congress woman, Jeanette Rankin. Now, Montana never elected another woman to Congress after that. Kathleen Williams would be the second ever. But the question we're asking in this episode is, how did Jeanette Rankin do it? Yes, she was white and her family had some money, but how did she actually get voted in four years before women got the vote nationally? And what can her story tell us about women fighting for political power today? Women like Kathleen Williams. Our reporter, Mara Silvers, was born and raised in Montana. She has our story. Who was the first woman elected to Congress? Elizabeth Rankin. 
It's a Jennifer. No, what was her You're name? You're so close. Close. Oh. Who was the first woman elected to Congress in the country? Jeanette Rankin. Janet Rankin. Janet Rankin. Jeanette Rankin. Jeanette Rankin. Jeanette Rankin. You know that off the top of your head. <laughs> nice. What else do you know about her? Um, she was a woman's hero. When I was growing up, I always heard Jeanette Rankin talked about as this legend, someone that the whole state should be proud of. But I never really understood her backstory. How did she go from the sprawling plains and rugged mountains out west to the halls of Congress? I went back to Montana to find out more about this woman I'd always heard about. I'm on a dirt road, as you can probably hear, and I haven't seen another car in a while. One of my first stops, this spot between the Missouri River and a mountain range called the North Big Belts. I don't have any service out here. Oh, there's somebody. The home that Jeanette Rankin grew up in isn't around anymore, but she spent a lot of summers up here. The family's old ranch home is nestled at the entrance to a rocky mountain gulch. Hey. Hey, is the Rankin Ranch up this way? Yeah, this would probably be them. Okay, great. Then I'll just walk around a little bit. Right, you by yourself? Yeah. Watch for snakes? Yeah, all okay. right. Montana is still a wild place, and it makes sense to me that this is where she came from. The landscape is rugged. It's intense. It makes me feel adventurous. It's a trait that Rankin showed throughout her whole life. There's this tiny dirt road that I'm on, and it goes in between these cliffs. Jeanette Rankin was the oldest child in a big family, and they were pretty well off. But at the beginning of the 20th century in rural Montana, there weren't a lot of opportunities for young women. Rankin got restless. She didn't want to be stuck in a small town, running the house, taking care of family. So when she was in her 20s, she left. She went to a place where young, ambitious people have gone for a long time. The metropolis of the Western world. A romantic panorama of towering spires and massive structures. A great city. Rankin arrived in New York City in 1908. She studied social work, and she spent a lot of time in Greenwich Village, where she was not the most radical lady on the block. This is where anarchist Emma Goldman and birth control advocate Margaret Sanger were making history around the same time that Rankin arrived. The village was a hotbed for political activism. And it's where Rankin fell in with a crowd of women who challenged her politically and socially. Not just lesbians, but free love, lesbians, socialism, anarchists. anarchists. Uh, these women show up in her life from then on. Rankin biographers Jim Lopatch and Jean Lakowski. I met them in their living room in Missoula, Montana. But how exciting for her, you know, she to encounter women who were uh, accomplished and making their own way financially. The women in Greenwich Village became Rankin's lifelong friends. And according to decades' worth of Rankin's personal letters, some may have also been her lovers. I think that the most logical, and I think it's responsible, conclusion is that uh, Jeanette Rankin was either bisexual or lesbian. Now, Rankin was very private about her personal relationship, so there's still a lot that historians are debating. But she never settled down with a man or a woman. She never had kids. It seems like New York City was where she started to see a future for herself as an independent political woman. And this kind of feminism was a big idea in the early 1900s. The first 
feminist movement in the late 19th century and the early 20th century must have been uh, just a, a deliriously wonderful time for her and other women who, who had ambitions. Historian Lillian Faderman. Jeanette Rankin uh, became an adult at, at a very heady period for women who wanted independence and saw themselves as as more than the domestic creatures that uh, many women were consigned to during the Victorian era. Rankin and her friends were invested in making social reform, with women taking the lead. They said society's problems could only be fixed if women held elected office and started making policy. And the first step toward taking political power was getting women the vote. After she earned her social work degree, Rankin burst onto the suffrage scene, and she quickly earned a reputation as one of the best campaigners in the whole country. Here's one part of a speech she gave in 1911. Men want women in the home, and they want them to make it perfect. Yet how can they make it so if they have no control of the influences of the home? Rankin campaigned all over the country, and when she had an audience, she made an impact. She wore stylish dresses, and she had a striking figure. She was just captivating to watch. One newspaper article described her as having a kind of luminous quality when she spoke. But what really made an impression were Rankin's ideas. It is beautiful and right that a mother should nurse her child through typhoid fever, but it is also beautiful and right that she should have a voice in regulating the milk supply from which the typhoid resulted. Eventually, Rankin brought her new campaigning skills back to conservative Montana, and she was careful in her suffrage speeches. She didn't want to come off as too radical. Her friend and fellow suffragist Mary O'Neill told her to be strategic. All the dope you can about the influence of women in behalf of the children and appeal to the higher standard of motherhood and truer home life. That's the gush that gets the public. That kind of speech, that'll do more to make suffragists than all the purely intellectual guff that we might give them in a whole hundred years. Rankin might have been dulling down her message, but that didn't mean she was boring. She was in Lewistown, speaking, and she came out in something like a gold... Leopard, leopard print, print outfit. Uh, she was outfit. quite the dresser. And they said that she just was mesmerizing, compelling. Rankin's other strength was being willing to cover a lot of ground on the campaign trail. And that's saying something. Montana is the fourth largest state, and in 1910, there were about two people per square mile. But by 1914, all of her road trips and street corner speeches paid off. Montana gave non-Native American women the vote. Native Americans wouldn't get the vote until they became U.S. citizens 10 years later. So this was how Rankin ended up running for Congress. Campaigning for suffrage was her gateway, her launch pad. Montanans knew her, women could vote for her. Her brother Wellington, a lawyer, funded and managed her whole campaign. And in 1916, she did it. She won her seat by a landslide. But electing a woman to Congress wasn't immediately headline news. The morning after the election, Jeanette Rankin said she called up the local papers herself. And I said, how did Jeanette Rankin run? And the newspaper said, oh, she lost. 
Rankin gave this interview in 1963 when she was in her 80s, and you can still hear how much she enjoys telling her victory story. And, uh, and along about 10 or 11 o'clock, Wellington telephoned. He was in Helena and I was in Missoula. That I had won. And so when the women came in to sympathize, we said, and I said, but I had won. I really had won. Rankin said the Montana papers didn't admit she'd won for another two days. Well, now, they, could, they knew from the beginning that I had won. Mm-hmm. Now, why did the newspapers say I hadn't all that time, except for wishful thinking? The election was international news. The United States had its first ever congresswoman. And after she took office, letters to Rankin from women started pouring in. Having a female representative created this window into so many women's lives. They wrote to her about factory conditions, problems on their farms, about having sick children, and the fear of having their sons drafted into war. One woman wrote to Rankin with a desperate plea for help. In the correspondence is a very poorly written, long, handwritten letter from a woman named Jessie Nakin, who, in her letter, describes being an abused wife. Mary Murphy is a professor of history and philosophy at Montana State University. When she found this letter, she was stunned. Nakin told Rankin about her whole marriage, and in 1917, that was unheard of. She was very happy to marry this man who seemed wonderful, and on her wedding night, he took away her pocketbook because he said she had no need for her own money. He did not swear at me till five months after we were married. I told him I believed I was in a family way. Oh, how he cursed at me and said he supposed I would be sickly and he would have to spend on me. And she then just chronicles a progression of verbal abuse, of physical abuse, of cutting her off from the community. And he knew all I knew of married life was what he told me, so he used me rough for six years of our married life. I had to let him, 14 to 20 times a week. I could not stand it. I got poor weighing around 100 pounds. And she figures out how to write to Rankin and ask for help. But Murphy says the country's first congresswoman didn't have many answers. You know, Rankin, what could she have told her to do? I mean, we didn't even have the concept of domestic abuse. A man had a right to his wife's body. She did not have any viable economic choices. There was no such thing as a shelter for abused women. Rankin didn't get to be an advocate for women for very long. She was outspoken and radical, but she was also unpopular. In 1917, just days into her first term, Rankin was one of the few members of Congress to vote against World War I, and her critics tore her apart. They said that she was weak, that she couldn't vote like a man. But the real blow came when Rankin got on the bad side of the biggest corporation in Montana. She stood up and defied the Anaconda Copper Mining Company. More than 160 men died in a mining disaster in Butte, Montana. The workers went on strike, and Rankin sided with them. But going up against the Anaconda Company was a dangerous move. 
over the course of the early part of the 20th century, they take control of practically all the newspapers in the state. They control employment, they control the economy, they have a very strong role in politics. Rankin pressed President Wilson to start an investigation into the accident. She also called for the government ownership of metal mines, and the company did not like that. It's the political kiss of death. The Anaconda Company pressured the state legislature to gerrymander Rankin out of her seat. Lawmakers even had a slogan, do you want to keep a woman in Congress? Rankin lost her bid for re-election after her first term. But 20 years later, she ran again on a pacifist platform, and she won. In 1941, a day after Pearl Harbor, Rankin was the only member of Congress to vote against World War II. And once again, she was politically sidelined. So, Mara, Jeanette Rankin, she gets to Congress, and she stakes out these unpopular positions. And so those stances lead her to losing political leverage. Right. So some of the people who celebrate Rankin say that the way she acted in her first term was almost sacrificial. She wasn't willing to seriously compromise on these major topics, and it cost her her career. See, and that begs the question, I mean, How effective was she as a legislator? The historians that I spoke to said not very. I mean, she didn't have any major legislation passed, although she did get the ball rolling on some maternal and child welfare bills that passed later on. But other people argue that her meaning is actually symbolic. And it seems like Rankin knew that at the time. She realized that it mattered the stances that the first woman took on war and labor. Now, that's not to say that Rankin didn't have her flaws. She used racist rhetoric when she was campaigning for suffrage in conservative areas, and she lived off of her brother's money, even though he treated his workers poorly. Plus, the people who knew her said that she was notoriously headstrong and difficult (laughs) to work with. And yet, she was willing to stand up for the people of her state. And I think that this is the kind of politicians that a lot of Montanans still yearn for. So many people there still see her as a legend. She's like the original nasty woman. I spoke to Betsy Mulligan-Dague. She's the director of the Jeanette Rankin Peace Center in Missoula, Montana. What else do you think about when you think about her? She showed up, you know, and she had great courage in not listening to the voices that were trying to tell her to play it safe. She was willing to stand by her conscience, even though it cost her. Okay, but if she's so symbolic and is still widely revered for that symbolism, why has Montana not sent another woman to Congress since then? I think that the easiest answer to that is that Montana has changed a lot since Rankin's time. When she was campaigning, she centered her gender as one of her strengths, that because she was a woman, she had this valuable perspective that could be used in politics. And that's an argument that a lot of men aren't buying anymore. When I brought up the fact that she was the last female representative for the state, most men that I talked to were ambivalent. There's plenty of women in office. Maybe Montana is just yet to get the right woman that is going to represent Montana views and values. Like with the whole Hillary thing and all of that, I just, I don't believe women should run for that kind of position of power. Why not? They're either going to be too power hungry to prove themselves or they're going to, uh, they're going to be too weak and soft hearted, I think. 
but most women had a different response. That's really depressing. I've never thought about it in those terms. That's horrific. That's not cool. What the hell's up with that? How do you feel about that? I think it's a load of dookie, and I hope that we elect one to Congress this year. So you're a supporter of Kathleen Williams, I, I assume? I am. Williams isn't the first progressive woman to run for this seat since Rankin. Women ran in the 1970s, the early 2000s, and even in 2016. But Williams and her supporters say that this year could be the year. Good. Hey, Kathleen. Hey there. Mara Silvers. Nice to meet you, Mara. Nice to meet you, too. I met Williams and her campaign staff at the Montana Folk Festival in Butte. She was wearing a long green summer dress, and it was really hot outside. But Williams was walking all over town, talking to voters the whole time. Get the job done in November. Oh, yeah, it's going to take all of us. So tell your friends, your bowling league, golf buddies, poker group. (laughs) Williams was an underdog in the Democratic primary this spring. She raised a lot less money than either of the male frontrunners. But she won partly by doing what Rankin did a century ago— driving all over the state to campaign in tiny towns and far-out districts. She's been telling voters she's competent, experienced, and ready to take on the chaos of Washington. Congress can't pass a budget. Washington is dysfunctional. Greg Gianforte does not represent us. There is a need. I have the ability, so I've stepped up. Montana is a fairly red state, even though it has a Democratic governor and a history of Democratic senators. It went 20 points for Trump in 2016. Gianforte, Williams' opponent, is a tech entrepreneur, a millionaire, one of the wealthiest members of Congress. And he has a reputation for having a short fuse. If he's defeated, it would be a huge political upset. But voters in Butte seemed excited about that possibility. You met Kathleen Williams? She's running for Congress Hi, here. Kathleen. Hi there. I'm Bob Henry. Hi, Bob. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Yeah, I'm running against Gianforte. I know that. Okay. I'm going to vote for you, too. Thank you so much. I can tell who you are. Oh, good. Keep up the good work. I'm so proud of you. Thank you. You kick his butt. Yeah. Please, please, please. <laughs> Need everyone's help, oh, right? You got yeah. it. You got tell it. Williams can come off as a little reserved, but she has a kind of quiet force. It's a kind of political willpower that I would like to imagine Rankin would respect. And Williams is working hard to get out the vote. After she won the primary, a local paper published an article with a photograph from her campaign. She's down on the ground, and it's the middle of winter. She's putting snow chains on her tires so she can keep trekking across the state. And when it comes to Rankin, Williams doesn't shy away from the occasional hat tip. And I'll leave you with this. It's been over a hundred years, and Jeanette Rankin deserves a successor. Join us. So Jeanette Rankin wasn't just the first female member of Congress. She was also the first queer female member of Congress. More about that in a minute. You're listening to Nancy. Hey, Nancy listeners. So over the last couple of weeks, you've heard us talking about this project we're calling I've Been Meaning to Tell You. We've asked you to share your stories about stuff you've been meaning to tell someone important in your life. And we've heard from tons of people who have told us about things they've wanted to share with old friends, family members, things that may be hard to share but might just be the key to getting a relationship back on track. 
or allowing the other person to know them more deeply. Exactly. And we are still collecting stories. We really want to hear yours. You can send it to us anonymously. That's totally okay, too. Go to nancypodcast.org tell for all the details. And we're back, Kathy. Tobin. So in the first half of the episode, we heard the story of Jeanette Rankin, the first ever congresswoman elected in this country. Amazing. We thought we would have the reporter behind that story into the studio. Hello, Mara. Hi. Hi, Mara. Hello. How's it going? Good. So you mentioned in your story that Jeanette Rankin was either bisexual or a lesbian. Yes. But why haven't we heard of her as like part of queer history? I think that's because there's a lot of people who are missing from queer history. There's a lot of people who, for one reason or another, we have not identified as queer. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that makes it hard to categorize Jeanette Rankin as lesbian or queer or bisexual or gay is that she wasn't using any of those terms to define herself in 1908 or 1910 or 1916 or even, I mean, she died in 1973. And that was never a, a word that she used. But I think that that's because it was a different it was a different time and the relationships that she was having with women were not actually that strange for the demographic that Jeanette Rankin is in, right? She's white, middle class, was pursuing education and pursuing a career. And in that demographic, uh, Jeanette Rankin was around a lot of women who um, for them, the idea of partnering with other women, both for friendship but also for romance, was a normal part of their existence. So a lot of women who were involved in the suffrage movement and in that feminist movement at the time fell into that category. And it wasn't strange. So what would have been the difference, though, between Jeanette Rankin as a queer woman uh, and someone who was a, a straight suffragist or feminist at that time? Right. There were straight women in those movements, as we would understand them at the time, but they were still doing very radical, non-heteronormative things. And so in that way, if women were in um, heterosexual relationships, a lot of them, if they were involved in the suffrage movement, were still radically challenging what it meant to be a woman, what it meant to be um, a woman in society, a woman in politics, a woman in education all at the same time. Um, And if we didn't know about who Rankin was having romantic relationships with, I think I would be asking myself the same question, like, how am I evaluating her queerness? Am I judging it just by who she may or may not have slept with, or am I judging it by how she was living her life at the time? So I don't know if I've come down to an answer on that. Yeah. That was was so interesting. I'm just like, yeah. Yeah. Why do we define queerness that way? Yeah, it's right. Yeah, more um, about who, you, like who you are and how you live your life, and less so about who are you sleeping with. Right. But it's really complicated. I don't know. Is there anything else that gave you more concrete clues about this aspect of her life? Well, I think a couple things. There's a lot of correspondence that historians have found between her and a lot of the women that she met in Greenwich Village, and those letters told me a part of Jeanette Rankin's story that I had not heard before and Mm -hmm. that had not been emphasized when I was growing up in Montana learning about Jeanette Rankin. So 
For example, she had a lot of women in her life that she was close with for decades. She never settled down with one person, but they were her support systems. They visited each other all the time. They wrote loving, affectionate letters to each other. But there were also sexual references and innuendos in the letters. I mean, Mm -hmm. Jeanette Rankin according to one of the letters, would buy lingerie for one woman um, with pink lacy bows and things like that. It's all described. I mean, the receipts are in in the history notebooks. They're literal receipts. (laughs) They're all literal receipts. (laughs) And so, and in addition to that, there was other references to sex when they were staying with each other. And and again, these are all different women um, that she met at different times or kind of fell in and out of touch with. But people were not using the same types of words that we're using today to describe their sexuality then. Mm -hmm. So Jeanette Rankin was not out here waving a flag that said lesbian. Huh. So privately, she was having romantic relationships with women. Do you think that's something voters would have had a problem with if they had known about it? It's definitely something that she was not trying to emphasize. I mean, she wasn't bringing the women that she was seeing along with her on the campaign trail all the time. And actually, her brother, Wellington, who managed and funded her whole campaign, he was kind of the political um, strategist behind her, um, encouraged her not to bring her Greenwich Village friends out to Montana. Mm. However, there are examples of other women who were more open about their partnerships at the time, and they managed to keep living their day-to-day lives. Jane Addams was one, several presidents of prominent female colleges at the time. And over the course of her life, Jeanette Rankin wasn't in hiding about this, but she was also strategic. She was private. She was strategic about how much she told to the public. Right. So... You mentioned in your story that in some places she used racist rhetoric when she was campaigning for the right to vote. Could you say more about that? Right. I mean, Rankin is not a saint in that regard at all. She was very, very politically strategic. So she was campaigning for suffrage around the country. And no matter where she went, she tailored her argument to what the politics of that state were at the Mm. time. And so when she was campaigning in conservative areas— a lot of the pushback from white male politicians was to say, well, if we give women the vote, then black women or women of color will overpower us at the polls. And she's on record saying, you've successfully kept black men away from the polls for decades. Don't act like this is impossible for you to configure. Like it's the argument doesn't end Mm -hmm. there. Why couldn't you do the same for black women? It's such a terrible thing to read now. And she is a more complicated person than those statements. I mean, she was progressive on a lot of other fronts. And later in her life, there are other examples of her being an advocate for people of color. But in those moments, she was arguing for something very strategic that eventually would help black women and would help women of color. But she was willing to compromise them in mm. those in those moments. Interesting. That's happened a lot in history. <laughs> Consistently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, so let's do a little fast-forwarding to this moment. Um, We have Kathleen Williams, who's running for Congress in Montana right now. She is not queer, correct? She's not queer. Okay. But it's interesting. How so? Because there have been other queer women who have ran for this seat, and Mm. they've not been elected, and their gayness has been a major part in that. Montana is a much more conservative place than it was in some ways when Rankin was running But Kathleen Williams is straight, and because she's straight, 
she can identify more with um, male voters in certain ways and not be construed as a threat. So, for example, she's a hunter. She is a fisher. She owns guns. She can present herself as kind of a more masculine, appealing person, but she's not gay. As opposed to Denise Juno, for example, who ran in 2016, who is gay, she's also Native American, and both of those factors together were two things that made her too progressive, too radical for a lot of white male voters in Montana to support. Oh, come on, Montana, do better. <laughs> that's, that's what came out in my reporting and in my experience living there. I mean, you can have a lot of conversations with people about different political ideas and um, different things that matter to them. But at the end of the day, sexual orientation and race are still really major factors for mm. white male voters, straight male voters in Montana. I talked to one guy who was a 60-year-old cattle rancher from Manhattan, Montana, population 1,500, very small. And when I met him, he identified as somebody in the political middle. He was didn't identify as conservative or liberal, but he votes for Republicans m more consistently. And he said, well, I would be open to voting for a woman as long as she really represented me and represented my values. And she would have to be, like, from Montana. There's, like, this whole thing about people coming in from out of state um, who oh. are, aren't real Montanans. So I asked about Denise Juno, who's Native American— and said, what about Denise Juno? Did you feel like she could represent you? And he kind of hedged around it for a little bit and said, no, she's too out there for me. She's a little too too progressive. And I said, did you know that she's gay? And he said, I did know that. That's not a great thing for me. Mm. And I said, why not? And he just said, I just don't feel that it's right. And that doesn't mean that I don't respect her as a person, but I wouldn't vote for a politician like that. And it was this moment of clarity for me that um, there are still those very firm opinions um, that make sexual orientation a massive part of somebody's identity in a way that is threatening or alienating to a lot of people. Well, so could Jeanette Rankin be elected today? I think the general consensus on that is no. One, because if she was living the life that she was living then today— Everybody would know about it. <laughs> right. <laughs> All sure. the receipts would be on Twitter. Mm -hmm. yep. Yep. And there would be a lot of pushback against the idea that not only is she a lesbian, but she's a promiscuous lesbian who doesn't have a stable partner. On top of just the general idea that she was a really progressive person for her time. I mean, she was pushing back against uh, big corporations in Montana, mining interests. She was uh, a huge advocate for labor unions. She was a pacifist. She voted against World War I and World War II. I mean, all of these things put her like to the left of Bernie Sanders plus being gay. So, I mean, or what we would now today consider gay. So I would find that very hard to believe that she could be elected to Montana today. Yeah. Well, Mara, thank you so much for coming in to talk to us. Thank you. Thank you. Are you going back to Montana anytime soon? I think in December. I think I'm going to find a cabin in the woods. Run away. Nice. cold? Yes. Hmm. But with a fire, not so bad. <laughs> 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 so there's that. It's <laughs> great. Yeah. That was Mara Silvers, a reporter in WNYC's newsroom. 
You can listen to more of the episode in which Mara's story appeared and the entire fantastic series United States of Anxiety wherever you get your podcasts. Big thanks to the whole team there. And that is our show. Make sure you vote. So important. All right, credits time. Our producer, Matt Collette. Sound designer, Jeremy Bloom. Production fellow, Temi Tayo Fagbenlay. Editor, Jenny Lawton. Executive producer, Paula Schumann. I'm Kathy Tu. I'm Tobin Lowe. And Nancy is a production of WNYC Studios. I like to pedal down the pavement on my purple bicycle. <laughs> <laughs>